Hey, Fish Bites listeners, settle in for a brand new episode, our first one since the full Major League Baseball offseason took effect. The Washington Nationals are World Series champs, the only pro baseball being played is outside the United States, and all of the free agents are truly free. At Fish Stripes, fishstripes.com, the website, and at Fish Stripes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we will guide you through all of it. As usual, I am Eli Sussman, the managing editor at Fish Stripes. I greatly appreciate your company. It is essential that the Marlins perform better at the major league level in 2020 than they did this past season. It ought to be a pretty significant improvement, too. We've now had back-to-back years where the team was in a distant last place in the National League East, not really competitive, and that was sort of to be expected once they torn down all the established core pieces that they had, reset all their payroll commitments, started building up through the farm system. I mean, all that was somewhat to be expected to a certain degree, but there's only so much patience that this fan base is going to have now 16 years removed from being in the postseason, and in all likelihood, whatever happens in 2020, I don't think there's a realistic path to them ending that postseason drought. So all of a sudden, you're going to be closing in on two decades where Marlins fans have not even made it into October, and in most of those years, not even come close to making it into October. They just completed an entire decade without even reaching the 500 mark in any single season. So it's been a tough grind. Some fans have endured through most of it. A lot of them have checked out in frustration, and this is a pretty critical year to show progress and to make a significant leap from having a 57 and 105 record to being yeah, more competitive. Would it be uh, probably the very best case scenario is to find a way at a last place in the division, but even if that's not in the cards, you have, you have all these four other teams right in the middle of their competitive windows, the Braves, the Nationals, the Phillies, the Mets. So that's understandable. You're not trying to go head-to-head with them right away, but you need to take a step forward. You need to have a team that, yeah, is competitive night-to-night, that has some consistent hot stretches where they tie together series win after series win, and more importantly, avoid the really free-fall slumps that they've had these past two years, especially in 2019. We've mentioned some of these prospects before, from Sixto Sanchez, Monte Harrison, Jesus Sanchez, George Guzman. Those are just four guys. Nick Neidert, to add to that, all those guys projected debuts coming up in 2020, and all of them have significantly higher ceilings than some of the placeholders on the current roster. Outside of that, you're going to have to invest. They'll have to invest in some established talent. Um, as intriguing as some of these prospects are, you want to have players that have some real name recognition that will get fans excited and have them believing that ownership is committed to building out a good team. You have some of their bad contracts that are now slipping off of the payroll with Martin Prado entering free agency, uh, Neil Walker, Curtis Granderson coming off the payroll as well, Wei Yin Chen finally entering the last year of that disastrous contract. Uh, a few days ago, the Marlins made it official that they were buying out the last year of Starlin Castro's deal as well. You have so much flexibility now, and although the prospects they have internally will represent some improvement over those departures, it needs to be a big step forward this coming year. And the most direct path to doing that is by spending money on players that are productive and still relatively close to their peak potential so that you can trust them to be good when you bring them in. The focus of this Fish Bites episode is to present my perfect Marlins offseason plan, one that puts the Marlins in position to win about 15 more games than they did a year ago, somewhere in that 71, 72, 73 win range. It requires a handful of free agent investments, uh, a few interesting trades, and some tough decisions on fan favorites and former top prospects, as well as simply promoting from within to feast on this great talent that you've acquired during this rebuild and via the draft and maximizing all that. I'm going to walk you through all these moves one by one. It's in roughly chronological order, broken up into the moves that will be made in this month of November. Others you'll expect right around the winter meetings and a few finishing touches that they'll be making after the switch of the new year, but before spring training. So it's giving you an idea of what the team will look like entering the 2020 spring training, laying out 
a plan that makes this team a lot more interesting to the casual fan and makes it more complete should prevent them from experiencing some of the long droughts that turned fans away in 2019 and it does it all without really absorbing all that much risk or depleting the farm system again we're trying to walk that careful line between making the team a lot better and of course putting them in position to make an additional leap in 2021 2022 and beyond Entering Monday, November 4th, the Marlins have 35 spaces filled on their 40-man roster, which will be a very important consideration for us in this exercise. Uh, Quite simply, you can't acquire uh, major league players during the offseason unless you have space for them on the 40-man roster, unless there's a corresponding move that opens up space if you do have all the spots filled. There is no injured list for you to hide anybody on during the heart of the offseason. You need to have that flexibility. And when you feel like you can't fit a certain player or someone is expendable, then that's when you see moves made. A lot of moves are inspired um, by the needs and availability that you have on your 40-man roster. 35 spaces filled right now, five openings, and the Marlins are going to need more than five to protect key prospects. At the winter meetings every year, there is a Rule 5 draft, which means that qualified minor league players who haven't yet had an opportunity to play in the major leagues are eligible to be selected by other teams. It depends on their minor league service time, whether it's four years removed from being drafted at a college or five years removed from being signed internationally or drafted at a high school. There's only so much time that a team can reserve the rights for a player until they're eligible for the Rule 5, and the Marlins have a lot of key players that are eligible this year. The five obvious ones are, in no particular order, Sixto Sanchez, Jazz Chisholm, Edward Cabrera, Nick Neidert, Lewin Diaz. You recognize all three of those pitchers, Neidert, Cabrera, and Sanchez, as uh, being some of the best pitching prospects in the organization. Chisholm and Diaz, shortstop and first baseman respectively, they were acquired at the trade deadline this past year, and both of them were fairly impressive after the trade deadline, both still in their early 20s. They're no-brainers to be protected because if they're left unprotected, being that they've already been experienced at AA, other teams will draft those guys, give them a shot in the majors, and hold on to their rights for the foreseeable future. The Marlins do not want to lose those. They give up a lot to acquire those guys in trades, and they want to let it play out within their own organization. Daniel Brown faced the minimum in the sixth, thanks to a double play, trying to do it again in the seventh. His pitch, and Chisholm swings away, hammers this ball. It's deep out in right center field. Dylan Thomas to the wall, and it's gone. What a night for Jazz Chisholm. He's now three for four with a homer, triple, a single, and he's given the Jumbo Shrimp a 4 nothing lead on his 19th combined home run of the season. But there's so much left on the to-do list in this Marlins offseason, and there are a couple other guys that I want to protect. Two other pitchers, Umberto Mejia and Will Stewart. Both of them finished the year at high A Jupiter. Uh, Mejia had by far the better statistical year of the two, that started in Low A Clinton and continued once he got promoted. Originally signed out of Panama, 22 years old. He's a, just a really well-rounded pitcher. And although he is relatively inexperienced based on the high levels of competition, um, and he's no sure bet to be selected in the Rule 5, the Marlins need to err on the side of caution because he has the potential to be a Major League starting pitcher. Uh, Some of the same goes with Stewart. He did not have as good a statistical year with Jupiter. It was inconsistent. At his best, he was threatening to throw no hitters. At his worst, he was beat around in the early innings. Uh, So the performance was disappointing. Acquired with Sixto in that JT Real Muto trade, but still in his early 20s. A really cerebral pitcher. He has a changeup that is a big difference maker, whether he's eventually going to be a starter or reliever. The Marlins have to play this one out with him at least a, little, a few months longer into the 2020 season and protect him. So, now that the roster is it's over the limit, to find space for Mejia and Stewart, there will need to be corresponding moves to open up room for them. And those moves will need to happen in these next few weeks because the deadline is in mid-November for the Marlins to set that 40-man roster prior to the Rule 5. To make room, in my mind, it's fairly easy 
um, decisions here. Um, and there's actually more than two guys that are expendable on the roster at the moment. Uh, the no-brainer to me is Wei and Chen entering the final year of his contract, coming off a very bad year, trying to transition to a relief role. He never profiled as a guy that would be effective coming out of the pen. There was no bump in the quality of his stuff. Um, and it seemed that Don Mattingly was uh, indecisive with the kind of role that Chen would have. He worked almost entirely in garbage time, uh, mop-up in a mop-up role, and um, irregular usage, especially down the stretch once they had that expanded roster. The team doesn't want him, and I'm sure he wants a fair shot at reviving his career elsewhere. Uh, the money is already a sunk cost, $22 million owed to him this year. You're not going to find any trade interest with him whatsoever. He's, um, he's a liability. So if you were to trade him, you'd be giving up other young talent to make him like at all intriguing to another team. It makes no sense to trade him. So you just cut ties. He doesn't mean much to this fan base. He doesn't have a clear role on the pitching staff. And uh, it's pretty simple. Opening up, they need that roster spot more than they need Chen to eat innings in garbage roles. And that makes it a no-brainer, in my opinion. We'll just see if the Marlins have the intestinal fortitude to cut ties with the guy knowing how much money he's owed. And the second move I'd make at that same moment here in November is just find a taker for JT Riddle. His trade value, obviously, a little bit higher than Chen's. He doesn't have a big contract attached to him, but he will be arbitration eligible for the first time in 2020. Do a little bit of a raise over what he's earned the past few years as a major leaguer, but still less than a million dollars in all likelihood because he had what's called a poor platform year. This past year in 2019 was his first one prior to arbitration, and he had a disastrous year. An OPS in of 601, and a lot of that was boosted early in the season, so it was even uglier as things went on. Ended the season on the injured list with a forearm strain. Just doesn't know how to get on base at the major league level. I love his defense at shortstop, um, but he's not going to be playing shortstop for the Marlins much going forward with Miguel Rojas under contract and with prospects like Chisholm and Jose Devers in the pipeline. He I don't know what the role would be for him on this team because he's not getting on base. And although he volunteered to transition to center field midway through last year, it was not overwhelmingly impressive. So he's kind of getting squeezed out of the team that drafted him way back in 2013. If he can't be a trusty platoon bat, if um, the only position that he's most comfortable in is one that he won't be playing in the first place, I, I think you test the market, try to find a taker for him even if the compensation in return is very minimal, it would probably be a nondescript organizational fielder prospect that uh, might not ever turn out into anything, but you'd get what you can for Riddle because uh, he's 28 years old, and to this point, he hasn't shown that he's a really effective major league player. Uh, I think the leash has been long enough. He's going to be out of options for the Marlins. Um, no team exactly is going to be clamoring for him, so don't get your hopes up, but get something is better than nothing. For all parties involved, it makes sense to give him a change of scenery. Before taking our plan into the meat of the offseason, we'll need to make a couple more 40-man roster moves because the Marlins, as things currently stand, are a terrible team, and they have these intriguing prospects in their system that you expect to break through within the next year, but as of opening day, most or all of them won't quite be ready, and that means they have holes to fill that you'll need to reach outside the organization, uh, especially on the position player side and in the bullpen. They need to acquire guys with track record, with some gravitas, who fans can believe in and get excited about, and that means spending money, and that means, more importantly, just having roster spaces to use on these guys to bring them in in the first place. In my case, we're going to open up two more spots, Currently, as it is, it's a full 40-man roster. We're going to bring that down to 38 before heading into free agency trades, etc. The first of those moves is uh, fairly cut and dry. It would be getting Brian Moran off of that roster. The sidewinding left-hander, great story, called up in September for his major league debut. He had been bouncing around so many organizations over the past decade and never got that opportunity at the highest level. He faced his brother 
He struck out his brother, and in his handful of appearances overall, he was an adequate pitcher. That being said, he is 31 years old. Uh, On a good day, his fastball gets up into the mid-80s. It's not the type of stuff that's going to miss very many bats once hitters get a good look at you. So they have to be realistic with what his role is and what his value is. If he is placed on waivers, it's very likely that he would make it all the way through waivers. And at that point, the Marlins could outright him to the minor leagues. He does have minor league options remaining. Uh, It doesn't close the book on him totally. He could get an invite to spring training, get an opportunity to earn his way back on in the major leagues. If he does have something special in that breaking ball and in that release point that is effective, as he showed in AAA this past year, then the Marlins could give him another shot on their roster and handle it then. But for the time being, that roster spot is very important for the offseason, and Moran simply does not need it. The second opening we're going to make is a little bit more controversial. It's finding a trade partner for Austin Dean. Dean, a longtime organizational player for the Marlins, and finally had his breakout in 2018. In both 2018 and 2019, just amazing offensive results in the high minors, and that's why he's gotten a few cups of coffee in the majors. Yet, that big bat that he's shown in the minors just has not translated at all. A slash line of 223, 268, 388, it's not that much better than JT Riddle. And at least with Riddle, you have that defensive value and versatility. Uh, With Dean, he finally got some opportunities down the stretch to play first base, and in a very, very small sample, he looked comfortable out there. But his primary position throughout his entire pro career has been in the outfield, specifically in left field. As it turns out, he just cannot give you a competitive left field effort out there. His arm, his range, his instincts, all those are bad. (laughs) There's no way to sugarcoat it that he is a bat first player. And that type of player is ideally put in an American League team where he could see a lot of reps as a designated hitter. In the National League, he's more of a pinch hitter. And first baseman, it's hard to justify carrying that kind of guy on the roster if you don't really see the upside in it. Again, the results have not been good at the major league level. He had a nice spurt in September, but we always know to keep September results, look at it with a grain of salt. There's so many variables that make it difficult to evaluate players that time of year. So if the only upside to his major league career thus far is what he did in September, then you need to weight that appropriately and realize that the fit just isn't very clean here with the team. If first base is going to be his main position moving forward, well, the Marlins, they have Garrett Cooper, and they have Lewin Diaz, and they have a bunch of outfielders in their system. That at least one of them may transition to first base along the way. It's just, it seems like his time is up with this Marlins team. He doesn't specifically fit the needs of the organization, and and frankly, he's such a good guy, you root for him to get a good look with a different franchise. Just the writing on the wall is pretty clear with Gene and his fit with the team, so this is a move that I think is a necessary one for all parties involved. Thank you for your patience. We finally made it to the fun part of the exercise, spending Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter's money to make this roster better, more marketable, and one that should translate into more wins in 2020. The first is going to be a reunion, and it's re-signing right-hander Sergio Romo for two years, $7.5 million. Last year, he was coming off an uneven season with Tampa Bay when the Marlins scooped him up all the way in spring training. His stuff had continued to deteriorate a little bit with age, and he was more hittable than he had been through most of his career. Uh, His consistency wasn't quite there, and for that reason, they were able to pick him up again late in the offseason for just one year and $2.5 million. His stuff didn't improve during the year necessarily, but the results and the consistency absolutely did. Combined between the Marlins and the Twins, who he was traded to in July, put up a 3.43 ERA, 3.68 fielder independent pitching, adding one full win above replacement, according to Fangraphs, in 16 and third innings pitched. He was also on the Twins postseason roster, and through no fault of his own, the Twins were swept out of that by the Yankees. So he's on the market again. He'll be entering his age 37 season, which would give you pause at almost any other position or type of player. 
But because Romo is someone that does not rely on velocity whatsoever, throwing just as soft as someone like Brian Moran does, but he has that filthy frisbee slider that continues to have great tilt to it and a few different angles to it where he can really play around with that pitch depending on the handedness of the batter or the count and make it effective. He continues to miss some bats with it and keep balls in the ballpark at a competitive rate. He's still a really viable pitcher who's comfortable in late-ending situations and, even more importantly, comfortable in a variety of roles. Two guaranteed years is what I think it would take to separate himself, to separate the Marlins from other bidders. There are going to be so many bidders for Romo, not not at a big dollar amount, but just at a certain contract amount because he is someone that improves almost any bullpen, and he certainly improves any clubhouse with what he brings as a fun-loving guy and as a humanitarian, someone that gets along great with young fans. he It's it's such a good value for what they had him last year. And even at this amount, two years, $7.5 million, I think it's extremely reasonable. And that would make him already the most highest-paid new acquisition under Marlins ownership, whether it's through the draft or free agency. The Marlins have not committed $7.5 million to any one player I think Romo is worth it. Following the signing of Romo, the Marlins' 40-man roster would be at 39, and this next trade with the Colorado Rockies would keep that roster at 39. It involves inquiring veteran hitter Daniel Murphy and infield prospect Ryan Vallade in exchange for right-hander Kyle Keller and infielder Bryson Brigman. Murphy, the veteran hitter, is obviously on the Rockies' 40-man roster, Keller is on the 40-man of the Marlins, so swapping those two, it keeps the roster intact. Uh, For Murphy in 2019, he had 478 plate appearances, so not quite a full season. He actually suffered an injury playing against the Marlins that cost him a lot of time. He slashed 279, 328 with a 452 slugging percentage, 13 home runs, but when you adjust for Coors Field, and all the games he played in the high altitude, it's only an 86 weighted runs created plus where league average is 100. He was significantly below league average as a hitter and below replacement level as an overall player, according to Fangraphs. His worst year in a long time, and by far a big drop-off from where he was just a few years ago as a fringe MVP candidate and a steady all-star. Even so, he still has good bat-to-ball skills by any standard, and he has a lot to teach in the art of hitting that earned him a big contract in the first place, first with the Nationals and more recently with the Rockies. I like his fit a lot on this team because he's recently played a lot of first base, and going back further, he was a steady second baseman. The Marlins, of course, have Isan Diaz prepared to enter the year as their second baseman, but a lot could go wrong with that. He did struggle in his first taste of the big leagues with the Marlins, and there are some things that give you pause about his defense and his bat ball skills. So Murphy is a good insurance policy in case of that, but I see him more so even playing first base for this Marlins team, uh, filling that role that Martin Prado and Neil Walker kind of combined to fill in 2019. Murphy, I think it's reasonable to expect a bit of a bounce back from him, even though he is deep into his 30s and coming off that bad year. He has such natural hitting skills, and he's going to get to work with new hitting offensive coordinator and bench coach James Rousen. So maybe there's something of that relationship that could bring him back to younger days. Simply being healthy should go a long way to getting him to be more productive. Uh, the key to all this working is that in acquiring Ryan Vallade, who's a very legit prospect, is that the Marlins would be absorbing all the guaranteed money that is owed to Daniel Murphy. The Rockies are in a situation where they have a lot of big payroll commitments and a very unbalanced roster. So to balance that out, they're going to need to dump some money. And the Marlins should take advantage of that in this kind of trade, absorbing the $8 million salary for Murphy, which also has a $6 million buyout to his mutual option next year. That's how much he's guaranteed in uh, 2021 if they don't agree to a mutual option that year. Uh, With Ryan Vallade, he had a massive year at the high A level with a 303 batting average, 367 on base, 466 slugging. It's worth noting that Vallade had some very extreme home road splits. He was great at home. 
980 OPS, and he was very mediocre on the road, 685. That's not all that unusual for a player, but something that would give you pause because he did play in a very hitter-friendly home ballpark. MLB Pipeline has this brief scouting report on him. Quote, he has a tremendous feel to hit with excellent bat speed and a quick swing from the right side of the plate. There's a lot of raw power to tap into with the chance for Valade to eventually have plus pop that he'll get to thanks to his approach. He is, uh, depending on where you look, either a shortstop or a third base prospect, but because of his size and his movements, more likely to shift over to third base, which addresses a big need in the Marlins farm system behind Brian Anderson. They, there's such a void of other third base options if Anderson was to have an injury or if there was a major league need for him to shift back to right field, that would create a big void where they wouldn't get production. It's important to have uh, insurance. And Ryan Vallade is still close enough to the draft that he doesn't need 40-man roster protection. And he put up those big numbers this past year at the age of 20. He's going to be age 21 next year, likely playing at double A. It's just such a good fit with the needs of the Marlins organization. And even if there's no immediate role for him, it's just another great asset at the very least for them to acquire and add some depth. As for what the Marlins would be giving up, Kyle Keller, uh, he'll be entering his age 27 season next year, and he has only a very brief MLB track record to show for it with mixed results. Uh, Someone that put up elite strikeout rates at every level of competition throughout his pro career and um, I'm just not as convinced that it's going to translate to the major league level or if he's going to throw enough consistent strikes to be successful. He's strictly a relief-only player at this point. I guess he's still technically a prospect because of lack of service time. He doesn't necessarily have a role on a good major league bullpen, which the Marlins hope to build within the next couple of years. He just seems really expendable to me. Someone that still has a chance to be successful in the majors with his fastball curveball combination if he's able to locate it there's also a big case that he's a high likelihood that he's just a you know a journeyman a journeyman um mop up a guy that never quite puts it all together so with the caliber of pitching staff that the marlins are expected to build i just he, he just feels really expendable when you have this opportunity to acquire two key infielders in this trade and bryson brigman is an interesting one where the timing of this trade is important because I can see a situation where he is taken from the Marlins in the Rule 5 draft. He's going to be eligible. He's had really consistent on-base skills in his pro career, but the actual uh, quality of his contact has been inconsistent. Put up really good swings throughout most of the 2018 season. They started with the Mariners and then was traded to the Marlins mid-season, but then he took a big step back this past year which included a demotion from double-A to high-A at one point. Uh, The versatility is nice. He can play both middle infield spots. But as we mentioned with someone like uh, JT Riddle, that you're just not seeing a clear path to him playing much middle infield for the Marlins at the major league level. So might as well send him to a place where he'll be better appreciated. Fast forward to the MLB winter meetings. The Marlins under this plan in this universe already have Sergio Romo in the fold, Daniel Murphy reinforcing the right side of their infield, Ryan Vallade has interesting prospect depth, but they need a lot more, and they have the resources to do it. The most obvious need at this point would be in the outfield, which has been a pit of despair for them the last couple years. A bunch of options they've cycled through who can't hit, who can't really defend, and they're going to take the dice, roll the dice, on someone whose stock is down a little bit by making a trade, acquiring Albert Almora Jr. from the Cubs in exchange for right-hander Jordan Holloway. The Cubs, I feel, would be interested in making this trade because Almora will be arbitration eligible for the first time in 2020, and he's coming off a disappointing year for them the previous year where the Cubs missed the playoffs, and Almora's offense and defense both took a step back in 363 plate appearances, a 236 batting average, 271 on base percentage, 381 slugging percentage. He set a career high with 12 home runs, uh, but only a 64 weighted runs created plus, or 100 is league average, and he was performing below replacement level overall. 
Uh, MLB Trade Rumors projects him to make a $1.8 million salary in arbitration. And to me, that is such a low-risk, high-reward gamble because Amora is only a couple years removed from being a perfectly good everyday outfielder for the Cubs. 2-2. Almora deep left. Good contact skills, um, not uh, much of a factor as a base stealer, but a good base runner overall, and a really versatile defender who can handle center field, which the Marlins in particular was a mess last year. That was the one position where they couldn't find a consistent answer, and he would be a great placeholder for them, I think, at the start of 2020. At the very least, he's a placeholder. And at the most, he could be a long-term outfielder for them, who's under control for the next few years. He doesn't have the skill set that gets highly paid in arbitration, as that projection already spells out. So to me, it's a very low risk. What they are trading is Jordan Holloway, who was in his first year back from Tommy John in 2019. The Marlins had to protect him on the 40-man roster because there's so much intrigue about his raw stuff. He has a high 90s fastball, and he has a beautiful... Uh, 12 to 6 curveball as well. Uh, not a whole lot else. And his performance in this first year back from Tommy John was peak inconsistency. It was hard to draw up a scenario where a player is more unpredictable one game to the next. Early in the year, virtually unhittable those first month, month and a half at High A Jupiter. And he also had this stretch in the middle of the summer where he couldn't throw strikes at all. More walks than strikes. Um, throughout June and July, it got pretty ugly where he was constantly missing up with his fastball and not getting himself in the kind of counts for opponents to chase at his secondary stuff. Holloway will be 24 for most of the 2020 season, so still young, but at this point, he's now five and a half years removed from the draft, and you could point to the injuries, but bottom line is he hasn't pitched above high A five and a half years into pro ball. The track record of those guys being impactful major leaguers is not very good. Uh, before and after the injury, he had this issue throwing strikes. Uh, there's still a perfectly reasonable scenario where he is a middle reliever at the major league level and one with good strikeout stuff. But any scenario about him sticking in the rotation or uh, even being like a lights out reliever, that's very optimistic. And I don't think that's a scenario that the Marlins should bet on. Uh, there is naturally going to be some prospect hugging now that the Marlins have put together this great farm system. There's going to be a natural reaction to want to hold on to as much of them as possible and build this team entirely homegrown. That's just not the way that things get done. You need to roll the dice in some situations to get players that you've already seen perform at the major league level like Almora has. He Almora is a highly a native who born and raised down here before he was a first-round pick of the Cubs. He might benefit a lot from the change of scenery and the fact that he'll have a consistent role. That was one issue last year with the Cubs, is he never really made it through a single week of the season as an everyday outfielder. But this just seems to be a nice fit between the two teams, with the Cubs reviving their farm system a little bit, uh, and the Marlins getting a very valuable placeholder who can turn out to be so much more than that if everything clicks for him. Also at the winter meetings, I'd like to see the Marlins continue with their free agent spending, even surpassing what they already reserved for Sergio Romo. Uh, the single biggest contract for them to hand out would be versatile infielder Brock Holt for two years and $9.5 million. In 2019, he played about half the time for the Red Sox, and he was really good, especially offensively. 297 batting average, 369 on base, 402 slugging. Only three home runs, but because of that great on-base ability, an above-average hitter, 103, weighted runs created plus, and according to Fangraphs, 1.3 wins above replacement for Holtz. He's been in this league for a while, with the Red Sox the last handful of years, including their World Series championship. Only one year where he's had a qualified season as close to an everyday player, so he's accustomed to moving around the infield, someone that carries every single glove possible in his duffel bag, 
all the infield positions, even the corner outfield positions. If you absolutely had to, I imagine he's a guy that would volunteer to pitch in certain situations too. Really well regarded as a clubhouse guy and someone in the community. So he's a great veteran presence for this team who has that championship pedigree and some unselfishness to his game. He's been really steady getting on base through the years. Battled some scary concussion situation not that long ago. Um, So that would give you some concern about how much playing time you can expect him. And the whole idea would be rolling into this year without any particular reserved spot for him uh, on an everyday basis. He's someone that fills the holes as needed and is really comfortable with that and has shown that uh, unlike someone like Almora who had difficulty adjusting to a part-time role, Holt uh, is the opposite where he seems to be really embracing that situation. For the Marlins, I would see um, we, you have Murphy already signed up for a lot of first base and second base with Holt. It would also be some second base and third base and, as well as left field, depending on how these options play out. He, he's someone that could move around to all three of those spots without him affecting his bat too much. And in the first place, he is never a great power hitter. So he understands how to be a productive player without hitting it over the wall. I don't think the transition from Fenway Park to Marlins Park would really adversely affect his game all that much. He's immune to that. So he seems like a nice, safe acquisition. The last handful of years, the Marlins have not invested much in these utility guys, and they've gotten burned pretty frequently when these guys don't hit as promised or uh, aren't as great defensively, you need to sometimes actually put up real guaranteed multi-year money for people that are proven in this role in the way that Brock Holt is. With the signing of Holt, that puts the Marlins 40-man roster at 40. You're all filled up right now, which would mean that any additional acquisitions would have to have a corresponding move uh, in order to make it work. And I'm perfectly fine with that because as things stand, you still have dispendable pitchers on this 40-man roster that I think you can upgrade on in free agency. Two more signings that I'm looking at, not quite as expensive as Holt, would be left-hander Jake Diekman for one year, $4 million guaranteed. Also include a club option on that for 2021. That would pay him $4 million as well. He was recently uh, sent into free agency when the Oakland A's declined his contract option, which was $5.75 million, which shows that they believe his market value is less than $5.75. I think $4 million is just about right for him. It might go a little higher than that. Again, we're calling this the perfect Marlins offseason plan, getting these guys at these particular prices that I feel are realistically, I feel are realistic but may err on the side of being a little team-friendly. So we'll see how it plays out, but they should be prepared to pay him whatever is necessary on that one-year deal and set up that option for him. In 2019, with the Royals and the A's, he put up a 4.65 ERA, 3.55 FIP, 1.0 wins above replacement, and 62 innings. So very similar to Sergio Romo, but a dramatically different style. Obviously being a left-hander, a much taller pitcher, and a harder thrower. He's pretty deep into his 30s, but he's been able to maintain that velocity. Uh, what draws me to him in the first place is that he keeps the ball in the ballpark. In 2019, the Marlins set an unfortunate franchise record, allowing more home runs than ever before, and Diekman would not be part of that issue. He has had some inconsistency throwing strikes, especially this past year, and had some bad luck in 2019 with those base runners coming around to score and not being able to strand them. That being said, with the way that baseball is being played right now, uh, the ball being used, and more importantly, the approach that hitters have, uh, the most valuable skill that a pitcher can possess is being able to keep the ball in the ballpark, and Diekman's been been able to do that. Never allowed more than five home runs in any single season of his career. All of a sudden, you update what this bullpen projects to be, and you have Sergio Romo and Diekman, Ryan Stanek, Harlan Garcia, Jeff Brigham, who was sneaky effective, Tyler Kinley. Maybe some of these top prospects really take to relieving immediately, like George Guzman. And it's a really competent group. After a year where they had maybe the worst bullpen in franchise history, you could take the leap to competence just by making some of these modest expenditures. 
the one name that I didn't include in that group is Tyrone Guerrero. We love his fastball velocity and his energy, but he was terrible in 2019 with both an ERA and a FIP above six. He was affected, no doubt, by some injuries to his fingernails. Um, it was a fingernail and also a finger, a couple separate stints on the injured list, and he's making up for those innings right now during the Dominican Winter League, but he's late into his 20s, and he has not had any consistent success as a major league reliever. Uh, decent strikeout rate, but an unacceptably high walk rate in the major leagues. If he doesn't have much trust in his slider, and he doesn't have consistent control of his fastball, he's just not going to get out consistently, especially in any high-leverage situations. I believe the Marlins can get away with designating him for assignment, having him pass through waivers, and outriding him to the minors, getting him off the 40-man in order to fit Diekman into the equation. I guess you still like Guerrero's potential a little bit just because of that triple-digit fastball velocity. It's just unreasonable to have him on the 40-man when other teams don't value him that much. For the final stage of the offseason, this comes after you've addressed the bullpen, added a couple veteran bats, and in all likelihood sent out minor league non-roster invites. Every team does it, you know, with about a dozen or more players at various positions. Uh, Particularly with the Marlins, it's going to be at catcher, where they'll need to bring in a couple guys just to work with their pitchers early in camp and potentially fill out the high minors. But in my mind, they do need to make one significant investment in a major league catcher. Now that Brian Holiday is in free agency, coming off a kind of uneven defensive year, and he hit well in 2019, but didn't really give you much confidence in that continuing moving forward. And Chad Wallach coming off concussion injuries. You know the way that Jorge Alfaro plays, where um, he had a of a decent first year with the Marlins, some very high highs, but a lot of inconsistency, and the kind of effort that he plays with, while it's really encouraging to see, it does, you would think, leave him more susceptible to injuries moving forward. Uh, All that being said, the Marlins should have a very strong backup option in place in case things go poorly with Alfaro, and, and simply to be a guy in the clubhouse and in the dugout that can offer valuable advice to the young core of this team. My pick for that would be Jason Castro for a one-year, $3.5 million guarantee, and this would probably be have some additional considerations in the contract. Aside from that guaranteed salary, have a million dollars in incentives based on him staying healthy, and an extra million dollars based on how often he's actually in the lineup. Give him a kind of deal that would max out at $5.5 million. That seems pretty steep at first glance for a backup, but this is a guy that was signed to the Twins in the first place a few years ago to be their starter uh, at a salary of, what, 7 or $8 million a year for those three years. He missed almost all of the 2018 season, and he missed a big chunk of 2019 as well. But when he was healthy enough to hit, he was really productive. 275 plate appearances last season, 232 batting average, 332 on base, 435 slugging. 13 home runs, and an above-average hitter overall at 103 WRC+, one and a half wins above replacement as a guy that did not play every single day on that crowded Twins team. I love the connection with James Rousen. Rousen, his time with the Twins coincided perfectly with Castro. They spent the same three seasons in Minnesota, and even now that Castro is in his 30s, he had this pretty productive year when he was in the lineup that I imagine, to at least some small extent, had to do with working with Rosen. Reuniting those guys works well. I don't like for that to dictate all of the offseason moves, but when you can bring a guy that's local to South Florida home, as they did with Albert Almora Jr., and now you bring a guy to work with a coach that he's already very familiar with in Castro, I, I think that stuff matters and can maximize the performance that those guys have. Now, is this the most realistic option? Would Castro be looking to start consistently with another team? Maybe, because he's used to that, and we know that in the current Major League Baseball environment, a lot of teams need catchers, or or at least very interested in upgrading at that position. 
So perhaps there is a situation where there's another team that offers more money or a bigger role, something in particular that Castro values more than to reunite with James Rousen. If not, I think this is the perfect fit for all the reasons I've already mentioned, and even more so because of Castro's pitch framing. If you rewind a few years when he was with the Astros, he was among the most valuable pitch framers in all of baseball. Uh, It's an unscientific uh, skill to have that ratings vary a little bit from site to site, but across baseball savants, baseball prospectus, um, Castro was unanimously regarded as an above-average pitch framer. And that's something that Alfaro in particular needs to improve upon. Last year, he was very ordinary middle of the road in that skill. And if you're looking, working with a lot of young pitchers, and that's how I envision this team going together, is keeping all these young, controllable starting pitchers intact, then we want to put them in the best opportunity to steal strikes, to have a guy that has worked with those skills before. And Castro, in particular, for that reason, I love the fit as a high-profile backup to Alfaro. Once again, with a full 40-man roster, the Marlins would need to make a corresponding move to bring Castro in in the first place, and this decision isn't as clear-cut as some of the previous ones because you've already made decisions on a lot of the worst performers from the previous year, either DFAing them or trading them away. So the decision is not as easy this time. There's a few different directions you could go, and in any case, you might feel some regret about it. There would be a case, certainly, to cut ties with Lewis Brinson, who, as I've mentioned previously, on the website and on the podcast, he is the worst hitting outfielder through his age 25 season that we have on record (laughs) in recent memory. There's a lot of reason to believe that Brinson is never going to tap into it, but being that the coaching staff has made some changes for the better and that the Marlins have some outfield reps to use early in the season, I think he deserves one more chance at least to come into spring training, and I wouldn't be comfortable cutting with ties with him at this juncture and risk him being cleaned by another team. Instead, the most expendable guy left on the 40-man would be left-hander Jose Quijada, who made his rookie debut in 2019, uh, showed good fastball velocity from the left side, and zero control whatsoever, even compared to someone like Guerrero. Uh, Keanu was even more volatile and straight up bad in locating his pitches. He had a lot of really explosive rallies um, that brought upon himself by getting into bad counts and putting free runners on base. Um, I think his fielder independent pitching was even higher than Guerrero's was this past year. Uh, Optioned back and forth between New Orleans and the Marlins several different times. He's younger than Guerrero is, just 24 years old, but he's missing that really critical element of pitching, which is knowing where your pitches are going. Uh, He was actually regarded as a top 30 prospect in the Marlins system entering last year, but I think that speaks to more towards the lack of depth that they had in that organization at that moment. To me, I, I think you take the chance that he's claimed elsewhere with what the moves they've made in this situation to improve the bullpen he wouldn't necessarily have a spot in that bullpen anyway. So to me, this is the kind of situation you get in. When you improve the roster, it means feeling comfortable um, with the op- with the chance to lose some of your former good prospects. And maybe Kahata puts it together. I think there is a very realistic situation that he goes unclaimed, and the Marlins would be able to keep him in the organization, as with some of the other previous relievers. Uh, if not... I I think that's a calculated risk that they should take. Executing this off-season plan, the Marlins wind up with a deeper, more talented, and more inviting team. One that, particularly in the bullpen, goes from being one of the worst in baseball to firmly in the middle of the pack with some significant upside. On the position player side, they have defensive pieces that make more sense alongside each other, and a lineup that put together doesn't have as many obvious holes in it. Just to give you a taste, this would be my projected opening day lineup with all these moves made and making it through spring training in good health. You have Miguel Rojas leading off as the starting shortstop, Brian Anderson batting second at third base, Garrett Cooper in left field at batting third, 
Daniel Murphy starting at first base and batting cleanup, Jorge Alfaro in the five spot catching, Isan Diaz playing second base and batting sixth, Albert Almora Jr. in the seven spot starting at center field, Magnair Sierra starting in right, batting eighth, and to getting the start, and at the end of the lineup, you have starting pitcher Sandy Alcantara. The major league payroll for this team is really similar to what they had in 2019, except I think the results would be a lot different. Very comfortable projecting this team to win 70 games, and maybe a couple even more than that, assuming reasonable health and that the top prospects breaking through get acclimated relatively quickly. That's a big question mark with this team, considering how some of their other young players have not had that smooth transition. But assuming that the coaches that they want are already in place and these players stay healthy and stay true to themselves, this is the kind of big leap forward that would get the Marlins excited and get this team moving in the right direction. So I'm interested to hear what you think before we get too deep into the offseason. Um, make sure to comment on this article, reach out to us on social media, uh, give us the details of what kind of plan you want the team to execute. Keep it within reason, as I was definitely tempted to hand out some bigger contracts to Yasiel Puig or Nicholas Castellanos, and maybe you believe that's the right move at this time. Um, I believe that tinkering on the margins in all these different ways would be more effective and less risky long-term, but always encouraging people to have conflicting perspectives from my own, and that's how you get the best solutions overall to what the team should be doing moving forward, is when you use the wisdom of the crowd to put it all together. Make sure to subscribe to the Fish Stripes podcast. Check with us always on the website and on social media. I'm Eli Sussman. Go Fish!